whether or not people invest in Chinese equities, it's so important for everybody to have a better understanding of what's going on in China. I mean, China, on average, over the last decade, every year has accounted for one third of global economic growth. That's a larger share of global growth than from the US, Europe, and Japan combined. Welcome. This is Field Points of View with Cameron Dawson and Johnny Gibson, a podcast about macro markets and investing brought to you by Fieldpoint Private. Cameron Dawson and Johnny Gibson work for Fieldpoint Private and are investment advisors registered with Fieldpoint Private Securities. All opinions expressed by Cameron or Johnny or any podcast guest are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Fieldpoint Private. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you are encouraged to speak with an investment professional before making any investment decisions. It is possible that clients of Fieldpoint Private will have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Fieldpoint Private Securities is an SEC-registered broker-dealer and registered investment advisor and is a member of FINRA. Hello, and welcome to Field Points of View. My name is Cameron Dawson, and I am the Chief Market Strategist at Fieldpoint Private. China has certainly been a big topic on investors' minds recently, with the flurry of news headlines and plunging equity markets. There is no better person to help make sense of all of this news than our guest today, the ultra-insightful Andy Rothman, Investment Strategist at Matthews Asia. Matthews Asia is an Asia-focused active manager that was founded 30 years ago and has nearly $30 billion under management. They have an incredible team doing differentiated proprietary research in Asia, and Andy Rothman is a valuable member of that team, being principally responsible for developing research focused on China's ongoing economic and political developments, while also complementing the broader investment team with in-depth analysis on Asia. Prior to joining Matthews Asia in 2014, Andy spent 14 years as CLSA's China macroeconomic strategist, where he conducted analysis into China and delivered his insights to their clients. Previously, Andy spent 17 years in the U.S. Foreign Service with a diplomatic career focused on China, including as head of the Macroeconomics and Domestic Policy Office of the U.S. Embassy in Beijing. In total, Andy has lived and worked in China for more than 20 years and is a proficient Mandarin speaker. So with that introduction, I present to you Field Points of View, in a conversation with Andy Rothman, investment strategist at Matthews Asia. So maybe a great place to start is what has been the biggest item in the news, which has been this regulatory crackdown, really focusing on big tech companies. So maybe you can give us a quick overview of what has happened, and then we can dive into the implications or really what is the motivation behind this regulatory change. That's a great place to start because the regulatory storm has been the dominant feature in news about China uh, for the last couple of months. Maybe a good place to start is to share with you my perspective of what this is not about, uh, because I think a lot of people are misinterpreting or overinterpreting this. Uh, Most importantly, I think this regulatory storm is not about 
reducing or eliminating the role of private entrepreneurial companies in the Chinese economy. Uh, and, and that is, I think, a, a serious mistake that a lot of people are making. Um, we have to remember that the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party, came to power and or has stayed in power on the backs of the entrepreneurial part of the Chinese economy. So for example, when I first started working in China in the early 1980s as a very junior American diplomat, there were no private companies at all in China. You couldn't even find a privately owned restaurant. Today, almost 90% of urban employment in China is with small privately run entrepreneurial companies. It's really the same engine of growth in China as here in the United States, small companies. Um, these companies create all of the net new jobs in China because the state sector is still shrinking. These private companies create all of the innovation, drive all of the wealth creation in China. So it would be impossible for the Chinese government or the Communist Party to go backwards on that, nor have I heard them say that that's what they want to do. In fact, they recognize that the rollout of this regulatory crackdown was handled really terribly. And so the government has been all over the media in China talking to Chinese people. They don't really focus on us. Talking to Chinese people saying, hey, wait, I know we did a horrible job of explaining this out, out of the gate, but let's make clear. In fact, Xi Jinping, the head of the government and the party said, we want to create more opportunities for more people to get rich. And he's gotten a whole bunch of other people down below the food chain and the Chinese government out trying to reassure people that that's not their intention. And, and I believe them because to try and curb the role of the private sector in China would just be completely counterproductive and disastrous for, for the government. The other thing that it's not about is to eliminate the possibility of companies being profitable or stop people from getting rich. It, what this is about, I think, is the same kind of debates and discussions that we've been having here in the United States. This is about inequality, how much of a gap, for example, between the pay of CEOs of S&P 500 companies and the median worker in those companies is appropriate. They're having the same problem in China. Um, what kind of wealth pyramid should there be? Should it be a pyramid or the Chinese are talking about making it an olive-shaped chart? So are some of the most rich people in China going to be a little bit less rich out of this because they're going to raise taxes at the very high end of the spectrum? For sure. But to me, it's kind of like the debate that we sometimes have here. You know, I, I think Jamie Dimon takes home like $35 million a year. If he only took home $25 million a year, would he, he be a less effective boss at the bank? And that's the kind of thing that the Chinese government is talking about now. They're having the same kind of debates that we're having about protecting consumers. For example, they have dominant internet platforms that have made you like sign up for things and then you get a subscription and it's really hard to get out of it because you can't find the button or you have to call somebody. Sound familiar? Um, uh, Anti-competitive practices where an internet platform would say to a small business, you can sell on our platform, but you cannot then sell on the other platform. 
So these are the kinds of things that the government is going after. Again, a lot of the same debates that we've been having here. The big difference is because it's a one-party authoritarian regime, they've been able to act on these debates really quickly. I mean, how long have we been debating the proper level of regulation of Amazon and Google and Facebook, and we haven't done very much about it? And they've acted quickly, and they've done a really poor job of communicating what it is that, that they're about. But this is not about turning... China into a non-competitive, uninvestable place. So on that note, you know, one of the things that was interesting in some of the language around this is how China is thinking very long term about the traditional factors of production, right? So we have land, labor, and capital, and now they've added data and thinking about how should the benefits of big data be shared amongst the economy instead of accruing to a very small subset of shareholders. And that's obviously something that we are wrestling with in the U.S. when we think about these platform businesses, surveillance economics. And so, you know, how do you think that this will evolve in China? Will China essentially go down the path of trying to you know, make zoning laws for data where you can use data for one purpose, but not for another purpose? Just like with land, you can build retail in one area, but you can only build residential in another. And so how do you see this question of the value of data evolving? That's a great question. I think that the Chinese government is focused on two broad objectives for data in their economy. One of them is very similar to what we're worried about here, and the other is quite different. The similar part is about restricting or managing how companies in China can monetize and use consumer data. Do they need to have permission from every consumer about how they use their data and how they monetize? What kind of security needs to be in place to protect the privacy of, of that data? And that's, a, that's the main focus. And I think that's very similar to the debates that we're having here. The other part of the equation in China, which is different from ours, is the Chinese government clearly wants access and visibility into private company data. It's an authoritarian one-party regime. They are used to, in the past, knowing as much more than anybody else about what's going on among their population. And now they're discovering that private companies actually know more about Chinese citizens than the Chinese government does. And for them, that's kind of scary. So they're saying, I think, to Chinese companies, in addition to controlling, regulating how you monetize this. So here we're going to have to think about what impact does this have on the business plans of individual companies? What impact is it going to have on margins? But the other side of it is the government saying, we also want to be able to peek in there because we want to understand if the population is concerned, worried, upset about something, and you're collecting this from their data, we want to be able to see this. If the data is showing you that consumers are worried about the health of the economy and they're slowing down their spending patterns, we want to have access to that so that maybe the central bank can tinker with monetary policy in response to that, and we won't be two steps behind. Hmm. 
you know, this is interesting from the perspective that in this uninvestable question is that a lot of people, their answer has been, well, just don't invest in the areas that they're going after. Don't invest in these what's considered soft tech, uh, platform businesses, consumer businesses, instead of focus on that deep tech, hard tech that is really existential to China's next stages of growth, if we think of things like artificial intelligence. So if you invest in that, though, the problem that seems to emerge is that that's even more critical to China than the this soft tech is. So how do you think then that investors can navigate when these things are so valuable Will China really allow the same kind of benefits of ownership um, in these areas that really, like I said, are, are existential to their growth? Uh, that's another great question. Um, I would suggest that investors look at this in a different way. Mm-hmm. I don't think that this is the Chinese government saying, for example, as some people are arguing, that we want to focus on hard tech and not so much on stock that we're, we, we don't really want to support continued growth in internet platforms that are being maybe used for gaming and chatting and things like that. Let's go for chips and hard drives. I don't see it that way. I think that the focus of the government and the Communist Party is on the socioeconomic issues that they fear could get out of control and create a political and social stability problem for them. So let's look at it this way. If you look at the internet platforms and the softer side of that, these are the companies that are driving job creation, especially for Chinese citizens without advanced schooling. These are the companies that are facilitating the growth of the tertiary part of GDP, the consumer and services part, the domestic demand story which is exactly what the Chinese government is trying to promote and has been really successful at. By the way, this year is the 10th consecutive year in which the tertiary part of GDP, the consumer and services part, is the largest part. So it's becoming a domestic demand economy like ours. And also, these are the companies that are driving demand for the hardwares. Where is all the demand? And this applies in the US too, I think, right? Where is all the demand for the fancy and faster chips coming from, right? It's coming from these softer users. So I think it's a mistake to argue that the Chinese government wants to handicap or trip up those companies. I also think it's a mistake for an investor to say, uh, I'm going to figure out which sectors the government is going after with this regulatory storm, and I'm going to avoid those sectors. Because again, I think they're going at the root of what they perceive to be important socioeconomic risks. So it's it's gig workers, right? Mm -hmm. So you could be a low tech company with a lot of gig workers and 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 the Chinese government is saying, well, these people aren't being paid well. They have no control over their schedules. They don't have adequate access to benefits. Sound familiar? Mm -hmm. Um, It's about anti-monopoly practices. So, you know, you could be a company that's making air conditioners, but in the end, you're selling to consumers. And if you're not treating your workers well, if you're not taking the best possible care of your wastewater, if you're 
using anti-competitive practices against your competitors and the other air conditioning companies, government's looking at you too. So, you know, this raises an interesting question for active managers and that you would imagine then that the opportunity is to focus on those companies that are thinking ahead of where the government's priorities are and making sure that their businesses are aligned with that so that either A, they don't come under fire or B, they can weather any kind of change in regulatory policy. So how do you think about that in a context where we know that the Chinese equity market is dominated by retail traders? I think the stat I've seen is 60 to 70 percent and that there has long been kind of an overlay of casino capitalism kind of nature to how these markets trade. So is that changing uh, over time? I know know there's been a lot of changes to different exchanges and and that there has been some evolution in trying to control margin debt so that it's not as whipsawed. But how do you navigate this as your backdrop, as an active manager focusing on quality when sometimes momentum matters more? Right. And I suppose looking back at the last year in the U.S. markets, you could argue that sometimes momentum and and day trading gets ahead of sound analysis. Um, I think in China, uh, retail investors still play an outsized role, but to a much less uh, large extent than a number of years ago. Uh, The share of uh, holdings and trading activity by institutional investors, whether they're pension funds or insurance companies or Um, mutual funds has been rising steadily in recent years as more and more Chinese investors are treating the stock market as a way to invest for their future, for their retirement, for their kids' education, and less as a day trading casino-like thing. Um, It's not balanced out properly yet in my view, but it's moving steadily in, in the right direction. And I think the volatility has gone down there considerably because of that. So I think this is one of the reasons why when you look at the Chinese market, you really have to be a long-term investor because there will be fluctuations that are going to be beyond anything that people can prepare for. Again, sometimes that happens here too, um, to a greater extent in China, of course. But we think that if you take a long-term approach and look at companies from the fundamentals perspective, that you can make money for your clients. And I also think that if to, to take this back to the regulatory storm, and I acknowledge here, you know, I'm selling my own book for Matthews Asia because we're the largest active uh, US-based investor in Chinese equities and bonds. Um, it's important to be active. You, what, what's really important in the face of this regulatory storm right now is to understand the business model for each company that you're thinking about investing in. And understand where the business model intersects with the socioeconomic concerns that the government has. It'd be like if Bernie Sanders became president of the United States and his party controlled both houses of Congress, you'd want to look at your portfolio and say, wow, um, if the minimum wage goes up, you know, the minimum, minimum wage, federal minimum wage in the U.S. hasn't gone up since I think 2009. If it goes up now, what's the impact going to be on this company? What's the impact of changes in healthcare? access and other benefits going to be changes to the tax code, 
So this is the same thing that we've had to do for our Chinese companies looking at this regulatory crackdown. And I think that, you know, you can't do that, obviously, if you're a passive investor. You know, it's interesting. You know, I think it was uh, Quinn and Turner in their boom and bust book. They talked about how the Chinese market essentially experienced 300 years worth of evolution in the space of 30 years in, in its maturing into being an open and or more open uh, capital market. And so you always see much bigger booms and busts when a market is nascent. And that seems to be kind of what has experienced. And so would you think that over time, these swings are going to become more dampened and, and it'll look um, a bit more like other developed markets. Yeah, I think that's the most likely outcome. And I think that's what Chinese regulators are, are aiming at. If you look at the changes that they've made, um, a lot of the mimic things that we've done over the last hundred years to try and better manage and regulate our markets and protect investors. Um, and I think this is also one of the reasons why, despite the political tensions between Beijing and Washington, they have continued to open up further to foreign institutional investors. Um, I think this is similar to what we saw in the 90s when they opened up, uh, and 2000s when they opened up to foreign investment in their commercial banking system. It was never about the money. It was about bringing in the knowledge and expertise. And I think in, in the capital markets in China, you know, foreigners play a really small role. Uh, foreigners overall have about 5% of the market cap in equities and bonds in China. So we don't drive the market. Um, also means that sometimes when people argue that Americans are with their investments in China are financing China's growth, which is bad for the US or they're financing their military rise, it's just not backed up by the data. We're really small. But what they do want is institutional investors with an institutional long-term research-based mindset mm -hmm. to help encourage that development in among their own players. And how do we contrast that desire with this sort of risk of delisting that kind of hovers around the U.S. listed Chinese stocks? And is that a real risk? Uh, and what, what would be the fallout if it was to um, really take hold? Yeah, it, it is a, a real risk. Um, can I ask you, if it's okay for me to give a bit of a long answer to this, because yes, it's a please. That's fantastic. <laughs> somewhat complicated question. And I think the background behind it's really important. So the background behind this, I think, is driven by a mistaken view of where China wants to grow up in the world to be held by a lot of people in the United States. Um, the most recent example of this was just a couple of days ago, George Soros wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal where he said that the US and China are locked into an existential life or death combat between repressive regimes and democracies. And that's, I think, a view that's pretty widely held in Washington. And I think it's wrong. Uh, I do not see any evidence that the Chinese government or the Chinese Communist Party wants to damage or weaken our democracy. 
I don't see any evidence that they want to blow up the global infrastructure that we created after World War II. They got rich off of that infrastructure. Now, do they want to have a greater say in how the rules are set and who the judges are? For sure. And we need to make some adjustments to these rules and regulations and, and be active participants in these to make sure that they're fair and promote our interests, as well as allowing China to succeed. But the idea that China is trying to undermine us, this is not the Soviet Union. China doesn't even have any allies. They're... I'm not aware of any country in the world that has raised their hand and said, in addition to taking Chinese financial aid and maybe buying technology from their companies, we would also like to import the Chinese Communist Party's Leninist system of governance to our country. I'm not aware of that. I'm not aware that the Chinese are even trying that because they know their system is unique. So I think we are maybe trying to create an enemy where what we have is a competitor. So that's kind of the backdrop here. And that has led to a warped view of what it means for Chinese companies to participate in our capital markets. All right, so now let's talk about the delisting. Sorry, this is going on for a long while, but let's talk about the delisting. Now, this all has a root in Sarbanes-Oxley, which is what, almost 20 years old now, right? Um, the authors of Sarbanes-Oxley felt that they wanted to fix what they thought were one of the reasons why Enron blew up, that the accounting firms auditing Enron didn't do a good job. So they created the PCAOB, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, which is under the jurisdiction of the SEC. And the PCAOB's job is periodically to audit the workbooks of the accounting companies that audit publicly listed companies in the United States, both domestic and foreign. For the foreign part, they've often had to sign agreements, the PCOB with other countries, because there are legal issues about data privacy and things like that. The one country they've not been able to come up with an agreement with is China. And for many years, the Chinese government just didn't seem interested. And I don't think we pushed it very hard. But then all of a sudden in recent years, people got more interested in this and the Chinese government seemed to respond. And I've been talking to the Chinese regulators about this for a few years. And they seem genuinely interested in finding a way to resolve this. It's come to a head now because last December, Congress passed a law called the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act. President Trump signed it into law. It says that it starts a three-year clock ticking for companies from any country that doesn't have an agreement with the PCOB to allow these audits of accounting firm workbooks for three years, all companies from that country will be delisted from US exchanges. Now let's make clear, this is a dispute between the two governments. It's not a Chinese company listed in New York saying, I don't want to be audited. They are being audited, usually by the Chinese branches of American accounting companies. Um, they have to follow all the SEC rules. Um, this is about the Chinese government saying, we're concerned about data privacy and national security issues with the Americans coming in and auditing the workbooks of the accounting companies that are auditing those listed mm -hmm. firms. Now, I spoke to the CSRC, the Chinese regulator in July, and they told me that they had given a new proposal to resolve this issue to the Biden administration and were engaged in talks with the PCAOB. Now, they didn't share with me the details, so I don't know if they've overcome some of the key problems. And the biggest problem is probably that the Chinese government is saying, 
each time you want to audit the workbooks of the accounting companies, come and ask us, and then we'll approve it. And the U.S. is saying, no, under our law, you have to give us blanket advance approval for all of them. And the Chinese are saying, well, but that conflicts with our law, and we've always allowed you to do it in the past. So that's where they're at loggerheads. Hopefully, this can be resolved, because my view is anything that allows the PCAOB to do these audits and protect American investors is a good way to solve this problem. And it should be solved because it's in our interest, right? If we want to continue to have the predominant capital markets in the, in the world, we need Chinese IPOs here because they're one of the largest sources of IPOs. Mm -hmm. If Americans are going to continue to invest in companies like Alibaba, which are listed both in New York and Hong Kong, Shouldn't we want them to stay listed in New York? Because then they're, they're under SEC scrutiny. It's better for our investors. So I think this is going to be an interesting test case for the question, does the Biden administration want to solve problems that exist between the US and China? Or are they uninterested in doing that because they're worried that any compromise with Chinese authorities will lead them to be tagged, the Biden administration, as soft on China which could be politically toxic in the current environment in Washington. This clock is ticking for potential delistings in the summer of 2024. So it's still a number of years away. And so I think for investors today, it's not a hot topic. And it's also really important to recognize that the largest Chinese companies that are listed via the ADR mechanism in New York, most of them already have dual listings in Hong Kong. And the shares are basically fungible. Mm -hmm. So for an institutional investor like, uh, like Matthews Asia, it's just a paperwork process to transfer uh, uh, an ADR share in New York to a Hong Kong share, and it's not even a taxable event. Yeah. So I'd like to get back to how you set up that answer on the geopolitical relationship, because it was interesting, Adam Tooze wrote an article a couple weeks ago about kind of throwing cold water on this notion that the US and China are inextricably locked in this Thucydides trap. And he's like, look, th there is no Thucydides trap here. But it is at the same time interesting to see the evolution of the language in how the US government talks about China. For the last decade, it was near peer. And then in uh, President Biden's most recent speech, it became strategic competitor. So how does Washington see its relationship with China today? And how does China see its relationship with Washington? And are they aligned or do they actually are, is there a sort of miscommunication where they, they see each other as two different things? That's a great question. And that Adam Tu's article is really good. It's in the New Statesman. And if people want to dig deeper into this issue, I encourage them to look that up. Uh, and another historian who's been writing interesting things about these kinds of issues as well as Paul Heer, H-E-E-R, uh, not only a historian, but a former um, U.S. national intelligence officer for East Asia. So worked in the CIA for a long time, focusing on analyzing what was going on in China. Um, and his work appears in the National Interest magazine. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I was in D.C. again. Um, and, you know, as, as you know, I spent 17 years in the, in the State Department working mostly on China before I got into this business about 20 years ago. Um, I was in D.C. in June. I've been on the phone with a lot of my contacts in Washington. Um, I, I think there are several elements at play in 
the changing way that America and American politicians look at, at China. And so let me just tick off a few of them. I think one of them is, you know, China's just gotten so big and so economically strong, well beyond anything anybody had imagined. I mean, I when I was running the macroeconomics office at the American embassy in Beijing in the late 90s, I was working on China's WTO accession. And we were looking at the financial services part of it. And, and to be honest, I was sitting there thinking, well, what banker brokerage firm in America is ever really going to be interested in China back in the, in the late 90s? So this is, you know, China has advanced well beyond what anybody is expecting. And I think for a lot of people in the United States, it's scary to have to think about sharing economic power on the global stage with someone else, especially if it's someone else whose governance system is completely different from ours, whose culture is very different from ours, and whose language can be impenetrable. Um, and I think this has made a lot of people really, really nervous. Um, I think for some people, there is a desire to have a big, powerful enemy for a variety of reasons. Um, and also, a lot of people just don't know very much about China. So it's, it's scary. Um, you know, and right now, there's a lot of parallels being drawn in articles between today's China and the Cultural Revolution, um, which I think is it's a really poor uh, analogy. Um, people don't realize how entrepreneurial China has become. I talked before about how it's being driven by private companies. People don't realize how much of a dramatic improvement of personal freedom Chinese people have enjoyed over the last few decades. Not political freedom, but personal freedom. Um, so it's really not your grandfather's Communist Party. Um, it is still a one-party authoritarian regime. There are still really bad things happening in China, like the tragedies in Hong Kong and, and Xinjiang. But we have to think about how do we respond to that? Now, one of the problems I see in Washington now is I hear people telling me, well, we've never really gotten anything out of engaging constructively with China. You know, they never hold up their end of an agreement. They never change. And this is where historians like, like Tu's and here are really important or, or Ian Johnston at uh, Harvard. It's really important to recognize that the last four decades of engagement between the US and other democracies with China has been really, really productive, both for us and for Chinese people, for most Chinese people, not all of them, obviously. For example, we got China into the WTO with one purpose in mind, to open up their markets to our companies. And it's worked. Now, have they abided by every part of the agreement? For sure not, hardly anybody does. But they've done enough that GM sells more cars every year in China than it does in the United States. They've done enough that since they joined the WTO about 20 years ago, US agricultural exports to China are up over 1,000%. To the rest of the world, they're up 100%. Our goods exports to China are up over 500% versus less than 100% to the rest of the world. Companies like Intel and Qualcomm and NVIDIA and Texas Instruments they make a lot of their global revenue from China, which goes into their R&D. Imports from China have helped keep inflation low, which is really important to working class families in the United States who spend a disproportionate share of their income on globally traded goods. So I think we need to get away from this mistaken view that working with 
China hasn't been productive for us. And instead we should use a stick because I think also what kind of leverage do we really have over China, especially now that it's become more of a domestic demand. So these are some of the things that I think are leading to poorly thought out views in Washington about how to deal with China. That, that raises the question on innovation in China and how you know, kind of the, the areas for innovation are evolving. And you all wrote a paper about how broader Asia is no longer a place where everything is produced, but nothing is invented. And, and this is really consistent with China's pursuits for the Made in China 2025 policy that came out a few years ago. And I remember when I was covering the industrials at that time, a lot of it was focused on, hey, China no longer is the lowest uh, cost uh, wage area. And so we're going to have to automate, but we're buying all of our robots from Japan. So we're really not benefiting from all of this automation. So clearly there is a push to raise the level of technology that China is able to produce in-house. And so it also reminds me of the question of where has innovation kind of come up short? I think about them in commercial aerospace, right? The COMAC C919 was announced in 2008, and it's still not a commercially viable option for Chinese airlines. What's going on? Why hasn't that happened? And so, you know, I, I know there's lots of lots of different points thrown out there, but how do we think about innovation in China over the next couple of decades? Okay, that's a really big question. Um, <laughs> so um, let me answer it in two parts. First, I think that you're, you're right in that the Chinese government has long been thinking ahead about how they can use fiscal and monetary and industrial policy to try and prod the economy to become more innovative. Let me give you an example. If you go back to the decade of the 2000s, every year during that decade, the Chinese government raised the minimum wage for workers by at least 10%. So this was the Chinese government saying to Chinese companies, if you can't afford to pay a decent wage to your workers that allows them to have a steadily rising standard of living, keeps them happy and content, and allows the consumer economy to grow because you're adding to income. If you can't do that, then we don't need your jobs. We don't need your business, go somewhere else. Hmm. Um, with the tax code, uh, I remember when I was living in Shanghai, meeting um, someone from a, a Scandinavian company that's the manufacturer of uh, equipment that makes machine tools. And Japan was going through a down cycle at that point. So they had lightly used equipment in Japan, which they wanted to sell into the Chinese market, buy it back from their Japanese customers. And the Chinese government saw this and raised the taxes on this used equipment as a disincentive and then lowered the taxes on the brand new state-of-the-art equipment, which this Scandinavian salesperson said was you know, more than the Chinese companies needed. But the Chinese government's view is we're, we're moving up in the world. We want our companies to have the best stuff. So we're going to incentivize people to buy state-of-the-art, not stuff that the Japanese are, are, are reselling to us. Um, 
Now, in terms of how to think about innovation, I think it's important for investors to have a broad definition of what innovation is. Um, think about Apple. Uh, Apple didn't really invent the technology behind MP3 players, right? But they perfected it and they made it consumer friendly and they knew how to market it. China's in a similar position where maybe they're not responsible for a large share of global breakthrough scientific advances, but they're really, really good at figuring out how to relatively cheaply build and service and market consumer-friendly technology. And so this is why our strategy at Matthews Asia is to look for privately run Chinese companies selling goods and services to Chinese consumers. That's where all the growth is coming from. And so, you know, you can poo-poo innovation, let's say for TikTok. Well, it's a short video that kids like to use. But if you're an investor, you know, that kind, excuse me, that kind of innovation um, can be profitable. They are still well behind though on other things. For example, uh, China is dependent on imported semiconductors. Not only are they dependent on them, but they're largely dependent on imported semiconductors from Taiwan. About a, they have, China imports every year more semiconductors in dollar terms than they import oil. And a quarter of those semiconductors and all the most sophisticated chips consumed in China come from Taiwan. The rest of them largely come from South Korea and Japan, other democracies. The reason I'm highlighting the Taiwan thing is because this is one of the reasons why I am not worried that China is going to invade Taiwan, because that would blow up their own economy. Mm. Their supply to chips would be completely cut off. Comac is another good example, the aircraft that you talked about. You know, one of the one of the not that well hidden secrets of this airplane, this commercial plane that they're putting together is almost all of the major components come from foreign producers, mostly Americans. But they've really been held up because integrating all of that stuff has been so complicated. Now, I don't want to bash China too much on this. I mean, the Japanese tried for many, many years to come up with a commercial airliner of their own and they have not succeeded. It's really, really hard. So we don't need, to, we, we need to be concerned about competition from China, but let's be concerned in a constructive, positive way. They're chasing us. Let's up our game. Let's treat this like Sputnik. Put more money into STEM education in the United States. Incentivize real R&D. Not try and, and hold Chinese companies back. First of all, that's not, not going to work, but that's really not our our way. You know, it, it, that reminds me of that pivot to Asia that happened about a decade ago where the U.S. Department of Defense was saying, hey, we're spending all this money fighting low technology counterinsurgency wars in the Middle East. We really need to focus on higher technology. And the end result over that time has been taking money away from just kind of like maintenance or what's called like in strength and then shoveling that into more R&D, realizing that we spent well over a decade really not prioritizing higher technology in the defense area. And I think it, it that, you know, can kind of be used as a as an example, you know, in, in multiple other areas. But it's interesting to see how that actually has shifted the approach to spending at the DOD itself. 
Yeah, and I think also we 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 need to have a clear view of what China's strategic and military goals are, so that we spend our money in the right places. Um, for example, to me, it seems really clear that what China wants is to have a grip over its backyard, kind of their version of the Monroe Doctrine, right? And this applies in the East and South China Seas. It's why they're building uh, small military bases on reefs and atolls in that area. Now, are they doing this because they want to protect their very long borders and their sea lanes? Or are they doing this because this is going to be the springboard for attacking Taiwan and the Philippines and Vietnam and maybe Japan? like some people are arguing. If we get that wrong, then we're focusing our defense spending on the wrong places. And, and to me, this is the former. It's about China protecting its own backyard. And here's where we need to be both clear-eyed about what it is they're trying to do. I mean, let's remember, they don't have any allies anywhere. They don't have anything like NATO. They don't have anything like the Warsaw Pact. But we also need to have the right guardrails in place. And basically that's the seventh fleet. And this has worked really well in the past, right? It's kept Taiwan safe and it has created the security environment for the people on Taiwan to go from martial law, which only ended in the mid 1980s to now a thriving democracy with the rule of law, wealthy, well-educated, healthy population. How much of this outward projection is about resources? And when we think about Belt and Road Initiative, when we think of the, the string of pearls in the South China Sea, and then the building out of all the infrastructure in Africa, as well as you know, uh, putting their first foreign military base across the bay from CENTCOM and Djibouti, uh, you know, what is the goal for this outward reach? Is it just to secure resources or is it as you, as you think not, is to kind of project the, the Chinese way of governance onto other countries and sort of that reminiscent of 20th century Western nation building? Uh, great question. Um, I think if you, let, let's talk about the, the economic and political side of it before the mil military side. Um, if you look at Belt and Road, there are a lot of similarities to the Marshall Plan um, that we put in place after World War II. Uh, I think it's about building, helping countries rebuild, which will then generate demand for Chinese consumer goods and industrial goods. It's also about helping expand supply for resources. I don't know that securing resources is the right term, because typically when the Chinese government and Chinese government controlled companies have gone into remote and less developed places and opened up access for minerals, those minerals, those hard commodities flow into the global supply pool. Does this help keep prices from rising and keep supply up, which benefits China greatly because they're a major consumer? For sure. But they're generally not going in and saying, this is all mine. Um, these are things that are going into the, the global supply chain. Um, and realistically, are they concerned about keeping sea lanes open? For sure. I mean, right now, the Chinese are dependent on the US Navy uh, to protect the Strait of Malacca, for example, where a lot of their commodities, including oil, come through. Um, 
Do they see themselves as a rising global power, which means that they should have a presence around the world strategically, politically, militarily? For sure. Um, are they any good at soft power? <laughs> they're just terrible at it. Um, and, I, and I'm not sure they're aware of that. And on the, on the military side, uh, I think their objectives are pretty limited. Um, the idea that they're gonna challenge the United States to be a global power with military reach around the world, I'm, I'm just not seeing that they have either the desire or the capacity to do that. So any discussion of China in the long run, I think would be incomplete without talking about currency. And you mentioned how China imports more semiconductors than it does oil. And that reminded me of how back a couple years ago, there was an oil contract from Saudi Arabia that was priced in renminbi instead of in dollars as oil is usually priced. What is the pursuit of the, uh, of the Chinese to have a more dominant global currency? Uh, do you think that it looks like a basket of currencies and it also weaving in that we know that the number of countries that used to have the U.S. as their dominant trading partner has been almost completely replaced by China as the dominant trading partner. So does that make a um, more dominant renminbi a more likely outcome? Your example is a great way of illustrating the answer to that question. Uh, when the Chinese government has been talking about internationalization of the renminbi, and that's the phrase that they use, it's been misinterpreted by a lot of people. It's been misinterpreted as, oh, the Chinese government wants to have the world take on the renminbi, the Chinese currency, as the, their reserve currency instead of the dollar. And I don't think that there's any evidence that that's what the Chinese government is after. Instead, what they're after is what you described in that example. They would like a steadily rising share of their trade to be denominated in renminbi mm -hmm. rather than in dollars. And so they have been incentivizing their trading partners to use more renminbi and less dollars when they're trading with China. And it's worked. The share of renminbi denominated trade has gone up. It's still pretty low. I think it's below 20%. Uh, I haven't looked in a little while. But this is really, really different from the idea that China's gonna, the renminbi is going to become a global reserve currency. There's no evidence of that movement whatsoever. And if you look at things like SWIFT uh, puts out data on the renminbi share of total global transactions, I think it's running at like 3-4%. Hmm. Um, let's keep in mind what governments and central banks are looking for when they're looking at reserve currencies. They want the reserve currency to be issued by a government that is stable and follows the rule of law and is transparent as much as possible about how exchange rates are set by the market. That's not China mm -hmm. and is not gonna be China for the foreseeable future. And I'm not aware of anybody in the Chinese government or the central bank who thinks that the renminbi is going to be going to challenge the United States dollar as a global reserve currency. They have very limited expectations for this. Uh, a corollary to this is the digital renminbi. 
or the digital yuan, another term for their currency. Um, I, I think this presents no threat or challenge really to us at all, because it, it is hobbled in terms of its global use by the same factors that prevent the paper renminbi from becoming a global reserve currency. And it's also clearly designed at this point to be for domestic use. So it's great for us to look at how they're rolling it out and think about what lessons can be drawn from that for our own use here. But we don't need to create a, a, a boogeyman out of the digital renminbi that it's going to take over the world or anything. This also, I think, feeds into the question about China's debt, and it's often been described as a debt problem and something that restricts their ability to run domestic policy as they might want to, right? When they say, oh, well, we have to worry about you know, financial risks or systemic risks, and so we're going to restrict our, our credit and our stimulus into the economy. How do you view... China's debt and what role it plays? And is there anything we can learn from the scenarios, things like Evergrande recently, about how that market is, is evolving and how it will, how it will uh, impact China's decision-making as a, as a government? Uh, I agree with the way you characterize the debt burden as putting limitations on China's fiscal uh, and monetary policies. Um, it is an overhang. Their debt to GDP level is right up there with some of the G7 um, countries. Um, and I think it has had an impact on things like how the Chinese government responded to COVID uh, and the economic consequences of that. Uh, China uh, put in place the smallest fiscal and monetary policy response to COVID of any major economy. Uh, they decided that they were going to deal with it by aggressively locking down and trying to control the spread of COVID rather than by pumping up the economy. And, you know, it's, it's worked pretty well, um, but they have tools available to them that most other countries don't in terms of enforcing lockdowns and, and trying to go to zero COVID. Now, we can talk about the long-term prospects for that separately. Um, but I think it's a mistake for people to say that the debt burden in China is a systemic threat, which is going to lead to a, a, a crash of the Chinese economy or a great recession. Um, what's really important to remember is where that debt came from. Um, the debt level was really low prior to the global financial crisis. It went up sharply because of the Chinese government's response to the GFC. And that response was the government calling Chinese banks, all of whom are controlled by the government and saying, you need to lend to government controlled state-owned enterprises. And we're gonna tell them what public infrastructure projects to accelerate, to generate jobs, to suck up the unemployment, which was the result of the slowdown in exports, which was the result of the global financial crisis. And that worked too. They had, they, they basically propped up the global economy back then, put a floor under the slowdown, but it left them with this big debt level. But because it's debt from state-owned banks to state-owned companies to build state-directed public infrastructure, it's very different than what created the global financial crisis here. There can't be a loss of confidence among counterparties because they're all the government. The government has 
the time to work through this. So the risk of that blowing up a systemic crisis is really low. Now, you also mentioned a concern that they have about financial risks, and this is really important. They have been really aggressive about trying to reduce risks in their financial system. Let me give you just one example. Uh, a lot of us were worried about what was happening with off-balance sheet activity, shadow banking, uh, a number of years ago. And, and the Chinese government really listened. So there's now been 37 or 38 consecutive months where the shadow banking activity each month on a year-over-year -year basis has been negative. So 37 consecutive months of negative year-over-year -year change. They've just basically shut that down because of the risks. So I think what the focus of the Chinese government has been lately is not so much on reducing the debt level. They're, they're focused on preventing it from rising further, but they're much more focused on reducing risks in the financial system. And this is where you get to something like Evergrande, the property developer that, that is struggling now and made default. One of the things the Chinese government's doing is saying to investors in China, you need to price risk. Not all companies are the same. This is part of, 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 of getting to a more mature financial system. And so defaults in China have been rising. Now, not at a level that makes us nervous. Default rates are still like 1%, so they're really low. And these are generally private companies that are faulting, not significant state-controlled entities. But they are saying, hey, if you're going to buy bonds from a company, you really need to do your homework. Isn't, isn't there great irony in that, which is that this is happening at the same time that the Fed is saying, oh, we'll step in and, and buy high yield debt in a, in a downturn. And essentially, you know, the being you know, the, the father of the prodigal son to all these profligate you know, uh, borrowers. So it's fascinating to see how we went down a completely different path and kind of said, oh, don't worry about more, more hazard. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll be willing to step in and be a buyer. Yeah, that's uh, a good comparison. So I know we're, I wish that we had three hours <laughs> to talk um, because I have so many more things to ask you. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And let me just make one last point. Um, mm -hmm. Whether or not people invest in Chinese equities, it's so important for everybody to have a better understanding of what's going on in China. I mean, China on average over the last decade, every year has accounted for one third of global economic growth. That's a larger share of global growth than from the US, Europe, and Japan combined. So even if you never invest in Chinese equities, which of course, from Matthew's Asia, we'd love to help you do, but even if you don't, it has such a big impact on what the Fed's decisions are, on what happens with so many US companies that you might own. It's really important to understand what's happening in China beyond what's in the headlines each day. And this is where I hope we can contribute and I've enjoyed the discussion. And, and if you go to the Matthews Asia uh, website, actually um, on the Sonology page, I write about a lot of the topics that we've been talking about and they're available to anybody. Thank you again. This has just been very, very fascinating. And, and I really appreciate uh, your time, Andy, as well as, as your time, Matt. So thank you guys. The preceding content is for informational purposes only and based on information available when created. It is not an offer or solicitation, nor is it tax or legal advice. It does not consider your financial circumstances, objectives or risk tolerance, and could be unsuitable for you. 
FuelPoint Private encourages you to speak with an investment professional before making any investment decisions.